an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 850. 850. Oh my gosh, so close to our seventh anniversary too. Uh, 850. Oh my god, it's blowing my mind. I, it's, I'm, my mind is, I'm stuffing it back into my head to process <laughs> how many hours of, of yammering that is. But uh, thank you for listening. Yeah, we're about at our seventh anniversary. So thank you, thank you, thank you for making that possible. Uh, this episode brought to you by Squarespace. You know, it's the beginning of the year. Maybe you made some resolutions. You're going to start a thing. I always tell you to start a thing. Some of you do it. Some of you were thinking about it. Now's the time. So if you need a landing page, a blog, an online store, Squarespace allows you to create a custom platform where you can make your latest goals into a reality. So do it. Manifest that thing digitally. You know, not just using social media, but build a destination online. Squarespace will help you do that. Start your free trial today, squarespace.com. Enter the offer code NERDIST to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, make your next move. Uh, let's go to the Nerdist Community Corkboard from folks like you in the Nerdist Community. You can email events at nerdist.com. You can also shoot a, a, a tweet to KT underscore money. KT money with an underscore in there. That is Katie Levine. Uh, our amazing producer, she is she is on top of stuff. Oh my god! But I don't know how we would have gotten through all these years without Katie Levine. <laughs> uh, Katie, you're a wonderful, patient uh, woman. Thank you so much for for helping make the podcast possible. Uh, but uh, Chris Ramirez writes. My wife runs a small Instagram shop named my.dearest.livy. She makes custom kids' clothing uh, ranging from newborns to, to 5T, which I guess is toddler. I don't know. I don't have kids yet. Um, I don't think that means quintuplets. Uh, but she's made custom clothing in bigger sizes. She prides herself on the quality and care of each piece she makes. Uh, she makes amazing pieces using uh, geeky fabrics like Disney Princess, Star Wars uh, leotards, and her newest creations are jumpers. And she's selling them through Instagram direct messaging and mydearestlivi.storenv.com. Uh, but, uh, but mainly find her on Instagram. 
And uh, the owner of the blog, Healthy Helper, uh, Kayla, is running the Boston Marathon and is trying to raise money for the uh, charity 261 Fearless, which works to empower women. She's never run the Boston Marathon before, but it has been something she has wanted to do forever. So she is very excited to run and make some money for the organization. To find out more or how to donate, visit HealthyHelperBlog.com. You can do it, Kayla! You can do it! Uh, I'm excited. I'm very excited for you, Kayla. Your life is going to change. You're going to do this thing and you're doing it for charity, but then you're going to complete this thing and it's just going to open up. It's just going to open up your world, you know, even training for a marathon. Let's just say for some reason, yeah, you're running and you fell and you hurt your foot and you're like, crap, I can't run anymore. The fact that you're even doing it is amazing. You are ahead of most people in the world who talk about doing something that they care about, but then maybe don't do it. So good job. Uh, healthyhelperblog.com. This episode is uh, Chili Gonzalez, who is uh, a, a master pianist, musician, producer. Um, I discovered him a while back uh, on a, a program that he was doing on YouTube called Pop Music Masterclass, and it's fucking great. He just he breaks down pop songs uh, and sort of gives you all the the musical matrix code behind them, but. Uh, but I really like him. I like him a lot. And he came to my house, and I have a piano. And he was the first person to play it because I had this piano restored. And I'm not a great pianist, by the way. So it was nice. I'm sure the piano appreciated having someone who could uh, manipulate it digitally, who knew what they were doing. But his latest album, uh, Chambers, and his Apple Music uh, Beats One radio show, Music's Cool, are absolutely worth listening to, but you should look him up. Uh, he's great, and uh, we had a really great chat in my living room. Katie Levine, she mic'd that up real good. You know, the p- piano sounds great. He plays piano, and 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 there's uh, he sort of plays throughout the podcast, and then at the end as well. So uh, I'm very excited about this uh, about this podcast. Still trying fun new things after all these after all these years with you kids. Um, this episode is also brought to you by Stamps.com. Stop going. To the post office. I mean, you can if you want. If you like misery and you like waiting in line and getting yelled at, just use stamps.com to automatically calculate and print the correct amount of postage for every letter and or package you send. Uh, it's all the services of the Postal Service right at your fingertips. Very easy. They're going to send you a digital scale. You can calculate whatever postage you need. And then they're going to even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. They save you money and time and energy that you should focus on that energy on creating your own stuff. Don't just scoop the aggravation out of your life, believe me. The older you get, the more you realize, like, just scoop the shit out of your life that that is toxic and just focus on positive things. Anything you can do at the post office, you can do from your desk. Use the offer code NERDIST for a four-week trial, including postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in NERDIST. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST and sign up today. With Stamps.com, you will never have to go to the post office again. And now, here's Nurse Podcast number 850 with musical genius, Chili Gonzalez. Now entering Nerdist.com. I mean, all the mics are picking so up. So I'm supposed to slide in the room in my underwear. That was your cue. That was of. the cue, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> oh, fantastic. Check, uh, check, check. My vocal level's good at, at this uh, distance. Mm-hmm. We are in my living room. She's like already eating cake. We, we, <laughs> we haven't even checked the voices yet. I know. I, I, I just got back from work. You know, I come in and my wife has brought you cake. And there's, it's already, it's, it's nice. It's already like, it's just an afternoon. We're just spending an afternoon eating cake so and you playing you walked piano. in and there was music and cake being I am wafting. so excited about that because uh, this piano, we've, all, we've had a short period of time. It took six or seven maybe eight months to have it restored and uh and it hasn't really been played partially because i'm not good and uh also just haven't been around that much to play so to come in and hear this piano being played was wonderful you were expecting like oh maybe like gonzo's gonna whip out some chopin instead it was (laughs) (laughs) yeah the uh yeah the chopin the chopin is that's one where if I could just learn one Chopin song, it would be the revolutionary etude. That's like that one, and I'd be happy. If I just knew that one song. That's a showstopper. It is a showstopper. You don't follow that really with anything. How does uh, – do, do you, can you play that or is that, is that just – is that something you – because it's so technically crazy, do you have to work on that? Yeah, I mean, like, I had the job of being a kind of lounge piano player for a long time. And when you're a lounge piano player, you just learn to fake almost everything. And sometimes it gets pretty crazy, but if someone were to, for example, come up to me while I'm playing in a hotel bar and say, can you play the Chopin Revolutionary Etude, I would just do this. You know, I'd be like... <laughs> and like most people would be like, yeah, pretty yeah, much it. it. Kind yeah. of sounds revolutionary It's a hotel bar, boring. they're probably drunk. They don't, you know. That's the thing. And uh, so... This is a great skill, and and you recognize it when you meet other musicians who sort of have had to just not be too proud to completely fake in a very utilitarian musical situation that humbles you and keeps you from thinking, everything I do is art, and I'm an artist. And it's also like, well, music is also background music. Right. And I've had a lot of, you know, old Jewish ladies literally cover their ears while I'm playing at some function, at some bar mitzvah or something. You sure. Know? And that humbles you. And I, you can always recognize another musician who's, I guess in comedy, there must be a similar sort of uh, respect for the people who've just done it in all of the conditions and just never have the the privilege to say like, no, not now. This isn't good enough for me. You know, you just have to do it uh, when you're a sort of working musician, working stiff musician. Yeah, because people who are, I do think it's very similar with music and comedy where people who don't understand the mechanics of either one of them just automatically think, oh, well, we'll just put the music over there. Or it's just like, oh, we'll just put the comedian over there. And like, well, yes, you could certainly can do that. Comedy, you hope, is not a background thing. I mean, like, if someone's doing a perf- – like, it'd be like, oh, we're just going to do a theater play in the background. That's right. You know, music really can set a tone. But the thing that is, makes me so jealous of music is that people love hearing the same songs over and over. They do not love hearing the same That's jokes right. over and over. Because abstraction versus sort of literality. You know, sure. I mean, you've, It's the same reason you, you don't really listen to – a podcast twice also right. like you verbally heard it it the words represented what was said and that comes across as verbal information that you recognize but music is pure poetry it's abstraction it's it's no one really hears it the same way but everyone kind of feels the same thing if the music is good and so it has that addictive quality because it's ephemeral and elusive and we also anchor uh 
like we anchor moments of time to it. We anchor our emotions. Right, the soundtrack to it. of your life. Of yes. Yes. And, it, and it, it's it's one of the you know it's one of the few ways without using substances where you can sort of cheat code your emotions. It's like oh, I'm kind of I'm gonna listen to this. Oh, I feel that way again. You know, and that there isn't really anything else like like that that you can call up in an instant. But one thing I like about comedy, it makes me jealous of comedians is. And it's scarier in a way, but you get that yes or no. Like the laugh happens or it doesn't. It's it's involuntary. And sure. if I play a piece, people can pity applause me, you know, like, oh, me, she tried. Or, you know, like they can still be sort of polite and you never really know. And that's why I sprinkle so much verbal comedy and and sort of ways of looking at music that are a bit surreal or a bit different to try to sort of... I call it like the how's my driving. You know? Sure. Like the truck has... I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is all abstract. I'm playing these abstract instrumental pieces. You seem to be enjoying them, although I can't be sure because it's this situation where you're applauding, which is like a conscious act as opposed to laughter or like maybe dancing in the world of DJs is mm-hmm. the sort of involuntary response that you're going for. So I have to sprinkle in these things like like jokes or like my little routine where I play major key songs in a, in a, in a minor key. Yes, know? yes, so the I do best. Like, Chariots of Fire already gets a laugh just because Chariots of Fire, right? right? And then you sort of... If I'm performing in Europe, I'll usually say something like, here we are in, you know, Warsaw 1942. Awkward laughter, awesome moment. Uh, And that gives me the how's my driving moment where I can be a little bit more sure that the audience is with me. Otherwise... Maybe it's a lack of a certain kind of confidence or something related to always being afraid that maybe it is being taken as background music that I need to check in. And so those moments allow me to check in. I'm like, okay, I'm getting the involuntary response I want, laughter. That's opening people up. It's sort of whatever tension is in the room is kind of being dissipated. And I can sort of now, with confidence play the next instrumental piece and not worry that my audience might get lost or something. Well, but there, but that's the difference between performers who are monologists and conversationalists. So, you know, you could just play a bunch of songs and let people be voyeurs. Or you could, even if you're a comedian, you could just say a monologue word for word every time and the audience is just there for it, but they're not really a part of it. Or you can engage them, and that's that's what you're doing, and 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 it, it show it kind of it gives them a sense of who you are, which then informs how they're gonna react to the pieces that you play because they have a sense of who you are, so that gives them information. Yes, and I always wanted that information. I remember going to art galleries with my dad, and he he would sort of we'd look at some like Max Ernst piece, something surreal, a little bit abstract, and you know I could just see he had this panic, like I don't know how to react to this and then he would like rush to go read the little paragraph written he'd be like right. he'd be like did you know that max ernst wrote this when he was in love with man ray's wife or something and i, I see it now you know and i was like <laughs> poor guy but also cool trick right like, context many listeners will react to the music alone and god bless them i'm happy they're amongst my audience also i doubt they're the majority i think the majority needs some context and i love context i love the contradictions of certain rappers. I love the fantasy life that you see represented in the great legends that we're like losing so so quickly. You know, Bowie and Prince, they're like living out of fantasy on stage. It's actually super intimate, even though it's larger than life. And that was what always grabbed me when I was a kid. It was just like, oh my God, Lionel Richie's dancing on the ceiling. Like, what does that mean? 
you know it means it means oh what a feeling he's dancing on the ceiling he's having it yeah that's well that's just uh yeah but did you know that lana ritchie like was a victim of domestic abuse what yeah so like from his wife right and and i hope i'm not no i didn't spoiler alert everybody yeah but that literally makes me hear dancing on the ceiling differently like whether we like it or not we have all these details about the artist's work and the artists themselves that we consume i want to be a man of my time i don't want to say it's better if people just react to the music alone i just think that's an unrealistic relic of another time maybe and that's not the time we're in and i want to be a man of my time so badly that i'm you know i've found ways to enjoy adding context to what i do and it has to do with how i dress and calling myself a musical genius and all these fantasies these sort of like what Larry David does when he's on his TV show versus real life. You kind of, this is how I wish I was, right? Right. That's what to me rappers are doing. That's what great pop artists have done. Uh, people he, want that though. I think people want to have a bit of, um, a bit of theatricality. Like they want to be absorbed in that. And also there's so, and now that everyone can just get all of their stuff out via the internet, there's so much music, there's so much comedy, there's so much art, which is great, but also how do you stand out and how do you connect with an audience and rise above all the noise? And the best way you can do that is be as much yourself as possible. That's right. Or at least as much of what, you know, the the, the, the identity that you're creating. Yeah, the rapper version of yourself. Right. Whatever that is, you know, you sort of superheroify or super villainify yourself however the case may be, I think the best artists are a little bit of both. You know, they're not afraid to show the negative sides. Comedians are great that way um, because they let out a lot of sort of taboo thoughts that aren't considered proper in polite society. And so they have a way to sort of introduce that in a controlled setting and people can identify. And that's such an amazing process that good comedians can create. And musicians create it in a different way, more by abstract fantasies, even if it's Bjork, who's an artist I don't particularly love to listen to, but I feel like I have some intimacy with her via her crazy fantasies. Sure. Uh, the fr- I first discovered you, I don't know if it was, I don't know how long ago it was, but it was through the Masterclass series, which is a phenomenal, I highly recommend it. They're on YouTube. It was for a, this German radio. Yeah, it's called, they're called One Live or Eins Live in Germany, and it's called Pop Music Masterclass. And it, it's essentially just sort of breaking down the matrix code behind, you know, here's a very popular pop song now. And these are the these are the mechanics that it uses. And you see these themes throughout music in this and this and this. Here's why this works. And here's what it just it just really distilled. And they're like five minutes, four or five minutes. And so yeah, don't be scared, everybody. No, <laughs> so edu- yeah, it's not like a, you know, a two hour lecture, but it's it's so interesting and educational, but, you know, really fascinating that it's. As unique as you think your favorite artist is, when you look throughout history, you're like, oh, no, no, no. Everyone, like, the, there are only so many notes. That's <laughs> you right. Know? There's yes. only so many ways to attack as this. As Billy Joel once asked, <laughs> will there still be music left to write? And, you know, the answer is yes. People will combine the notes. But fundamentals do change. For example, everyone used to say that the music is made up of three elements, which is melody, which is the part you sing, like, rhythm, very instinctive thing. And then harmony, which is maybe the one that's a little bit more sneaky and requires a little bit more care, but sort of gives color to the music in a way. Now there's something like basically sound is now an official fourth member of that family and in a way has pushed harmony out a lot. And harmony was there to sort of 
be the composer's sort of like calling card. And now you can hear the calling card in a certain sound. You can hear a certain hand clap and you're like Pharrell Williams. Right. Or you hear like a certain hi-hat and you're like Young Thug. Whatever, you, you associate these audio signatures with certain artists and that kind of has come to replace harmony. And so sometimes when I'm sitting down to analyze one of these pop songs for the, the video series, I'll be like, there are no chords in this song. So, but somehow they're still telling a story, you know, because harmony essentially, like it tells a story. So you have like, most songs sort of start with a chord that you would call like the home key. And then you go somewhere else. And then you kind of go somewhere else, which gives you a strong feeling like, okay, we're not done yet. That obviously wants to resolve somewhere. And so it's just like the hero's journey, you know, right. you start at home, you go somewhere, you come back. Just like Wizard of Oz narrative basically applies to most pieces of music because they start at home and go somewhere and come back. But more and more that story is just getting flattened and reduced by like sound and by just the most basic amounts of rhythm. So I was thinking of that song, Fancy. Mm-hmm. That's uh, Charlie XCX, uh, well, Iggy Azalea. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. So on that piece of music, I was like, okay, there's obviously a story is being told here, but I can't find it through the more traditional channels of like playing the chord progression and playing the sort of, this feels happy, this feels unsure, this feels sad, but we're back home. You, know, you can usually play that game when you listen to a chord progression. But that, this was like confounding me because there were no chords. And all there is, the entire music in terms of what we would call music in a traditional way, is just, you know, this, this riff, right? And so what I realized is, okay, these are almost identical phrases, these two phrases, but what's different? It's just that on the first one, there's a syncopation, which means there's kind of a beat that comes a little bit sooner than you think it would. So, okay, and that creates sort of this feeling of like tentative. It doesn't feel final because it's hanging in the air, right? The note is hanging in the air rhythmically. What? And then you get your answer. It's the exact same, except they delay that last note to something that's final. Right. And there's your story, you know? A question and an answer. Just like on, like, you know? Question. Answer. You know? Exactly. And that's, that's sort of what so much music is based on, is this, like, basic transactions of, like, expectation surprise or expectation false surprise followed by resolution you know they they have these names of things like there's something called a deceptive cadence so a cadence is how you end a phrase right it would be like and everyone could probably guess it's going to end here but what a deceptive cadence does is it makes you think it's going to go there and then does a bait and switch It's like a deceptive cadence. It's deceived you. Right. You know? Well, that's why, uh, I, you know, I'd read or heard that when, uh, they were, when the Beatles were, you know, playing in the clubs, like, early, early on, and they had to play, you know, hours and hours and hours, that it put, it put McCartney into this headspace of trying to find more interesting ways, places to take notes Rather than just those same, you know, those same rock chords over and over and over again, which was kind of the foundation of, you know, that signature Beatles thing that you can't quite 
say exactly what it is, but it's just, oh, there's always like an interesting chord. The twist. And, the and when twist you think it's going there. this way, it's like it goes up to like a sixth or yeah. like something odd that you don't okay. expect, but it's completely within the story and refreshing and surprising. And, and, but you, but I, I guess you do have to, you have to use that stuff sparingly, right? Because otherwise it's just a mess. Is that, is that true? Well, I would say that, you know, a surprise chord has more effect the more seldom it's played. It literally ceases to be a surprise. You know, a lot of jazz fusion is probably testament to the fact that when it's always surprising and always unexpected and you literally couldn't predict it, then maybe the music hasn't done the job of enough satisfaction. You right. It's always dosed the satisfaction and the, the surprise and teasing the audience, but ultimately... Uh, not being like a mean old tease, but being like a tease who like follows up, you know? When is, because uh, I guess it's very open to interpretation, but you know, I have a Dave Brubeck station on Pandora and I can't tell you why, but I know some jazz makes sense and it feels like, oh, these are really great musicians. And sometimes it just feels like, well, they don't know where they're just fucking around and they don't know where they're going and it feels too unstructured. So with something like jazz, what's the, what really makes it how can you even say what makes it good is it just personal preference or are there real structures to follow well dave brubeck is a good example of someone who jazz purists would say you know we respect him but <laughs> somehow he he's just really good at connecting with his audience and i think i would argue that he's a pop musician in a way got it and uh you know he had a little bit of a brand you know he had these songs that were like in strange time signatures so mm -hmm. famously take five right you count to five in it right it's like one two three four five one two three four five There's no other song i can think of off the top of my head that is in five four uh hey yeah by uh, andre 3000 is in some very strange Time signature, I think it's like 13-4, 15-4. Radiohead does some weird time signatures, too. They have some interesting time signatures. But they're pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one of my favorite bands, and I agree with you. I completely <laughs> Those agree Those two with feelings you. are not mutually exclusive, by right, the way. Right, Many of the composers, you know, I love Franz Liszt, and he was very, very pretentious. But again, you know, that's you part know. of the... That's part of the mythos of it's like, oh, this is what they do. Of course. And I'm happy that this is what they do. That's really funny. That, but, and there are enough flashes of humor to understand that they also know that their brand, to a certain extent, is pretentious TM. You know? Of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. But it, you know, this idea, and, and also, by the way, it almost, almost, we went to Austria last year and like toured, went to Salzburg and toured like Mozart's apartment and mm -hmm. saw like, oh, this was his harpsichord was right here. And I always thought working on a harpsichord would be so frustrating and wonderful at the same time because it only makes each you can only do one thing with it even if you can't play with the the intensity like you can on a piano it just right. plucks a string and so that's the sound it makes so it really you really have to write good notes for the harpsichord to good make sense. notes and they found strange solutions to make it expressive because it's true the harpsichord basically you cannot hit it softer or louder it's just but, monotone so a piano is of course i can hit it softly so there's already some sort of feeling of a human behind even just a single note being hit but a harpsichord it's just flat and and so that's why there's all that ornamentation I mean, I'm sure people know this. Not but getting it, not getting it. What is it? 
And she's watching us. <laughs> that needs to be on a harpsichord. That needs to be played on a harpsichord. Well, this part works really well on a harpsichord. Really, really well. That because I think I I'm, I don't know if most people know this. I'm sure I just assume they probably do. But a piano is basically a stri- a striking of the string, and a harpsichord is a plucking of the string. Yeah. So there's just like that's it. That's all you can do with it. But the piano is also quite weak in lots of ways. For example, you can't bend a note on a piano. So if you play the violin, you can put in this crazy expression where it goes like, you know, or a clarinet at the beginning of Rhapsody in Blue, or a guitar going like, beer, beer, like. Basically, every instrument, including the human voice, can bend, and and that gives you this crazy emotional range. Like the blue note, as they call it, Mm -hmm. is like finding some space in between notes. But on the piano, you literally can't. There's just these two notes, and like if I try to stick my finger in between them, there's no note I can play. And so again, the piano is weak, but is somehow maddeningly um, like calling out to composers to try to like overcome that weakness. You know, even that Beethoven piece, it's all about this. You know, it's like he's just pointing out this impossibility of playing in between the notes. You can't actually find a blue note on a piano, or can you? Wait a minute. Because if you play little things called grace notes, which basically Baroque guys used to do, but jazz guys perfected. It's like this Thelonious Monk kind of feeling. that's like taunting the pianist in a way like you'll never be able to play a blue note but there's all these effects and like ways that genius pianists were like i'm going to create the illusion i will overcome this instrument's weakness well and when when you look at the history of piano now we just i think we just sort of take music for granted like oh it's a piano but in the early days this was you know like a technological advancement so they were really trying to understand and, and also the like the the newtonian the mathematics of sound when the string is this long it makes this sound when it's when you have it it has this component where it makes this less uh this different now has different tonality and different sound and so they they really almost were scientists in a weird sort of way and well tech guys they were like tech guys tech guys because it was also an aspirational middle class thing to have as you now know like (laughs) you know now you have a piano that befits your station you know and that's that's sort of what a piano was it was the way to make music in the home before there were recordings and your sort of bench full of sheet music was like, you know, I'm going to be really cheesy here, was like your Spotify playlist, kids. You know? <laughs> well, it was. If you <laughs> wanted to was. hear music, you had to fucking make it. And these were tech guys. And there was like an arms race of piano makers. Like, who's going to make the instrument? Who's going to make the standard? You know, who's going to be the apple of, of the, the piano makers? And end up being like Steinway and like the names we still remember today of the main piano makers are basically the equivalent of like tech barons of their time. And it was really, really big money for that time and it was the first time the music business basically flowered and first time there were celebrities like Franz Liszt who was the first to literally play a concert as a solo artist where he was the only artist on stage for the full hour and a half he tilted the piano so he could make eyes at the ladies (laughs) and he spread rumors that he was possessed by the devil amazing and so he's the first guy who understood this thing that we were talking about you add the context to the story to to amplify it you add fantasy into it uh you don't try to 
um, you know, shy away from sort of blowing people's minds. You kind of go in search of blowing people's minds. And that was a very interesting shift that has just paved the way for the, the culture we're in today, the sort of nexus of the genius figure uh, and being an important, influential member of culture not being mutually exclusive finally. And, uh, and really, you wouldn't have the interest we have in people's lives and reality TV and all of that without Franz Liszt, I think. <laughs> I, I believe that there is a direct connection back to that because what I wonder is how do you, how do people know who you are at that time? Like if you're, if you're Franz Liszt or you're Beethoven or you're oh, anyone. I know what it is. It was all about the engravings that were in shop windows. Like when I read, I read so much about the Romantic era and they're like, Berlioz had finally arrived in Paris. In every engraver's shop, one could find his likeness, you know? Like, oh, yeah. And that was like the equivalent of sort of owning the internet for a day so who's <laughs> but who's driving that is it is it the is it the upper class and royalty saying oh i like this person so that just sort of trickles down and everyone goes oh that person's I, someone I think to know it was aspirational middle class because they were trying to ape the aristocracy in a way and the aristocracy had enough money to have personal orchestras so people would sort of get their their digs and then be like okay how can we sort of squint and feel like we're aristocrats well let's have like a salon in our home and then they would have like a pianist come play in their home got it and then that person would you know it's the equivalent of like going to do a bunch of showcases for record companies i sure. guess today or something or um you know whatever crowdfunding your thing just like letting people see what you do and then seeing if there's a chance for you to actually like put on a concert but it was private sponsorship from aspirational people who had just come into money and wanted to feel more or less like sort of royalty junior sure yeah yeah i mean basically probably the same way they felt like when they got it the, when they were the first to have a tv in their neighborhood come over and watch this exactly luxurious right. thing that we have that's right uh but you are canadian correct that's right and then I think I read you you leapt from Canada over to Germany. That's right. Berlin, Paris, and now Cologne, but more or less staying in that Western European sphere where classical music was kind of born and died. <laughs> <laughs> what and when when does classical music officially end? Like what World is War One, World much. War One. Like then it turns into like intellectual crap and like unlistenable, purposefully unlistenable. Like it loses its will to be relevant to people and retreats into an ivory tower. I'm grossly overgeneralizing here as I normally do. And I'm, you know, people are going to berate me, but you know, if you squint gun to your head, is classical music alive or dead? Like you're going to say dead. There's no one really thinks it's, you know, there's lots of institutions that are trying to do well and like God bless them. But I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in getting my music heard and being a person of my time. So I'm not a gateway drug to get people interested in like, you like me? You should check out Brahms. Like, it's not, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I would rather just fit in in between like a Drake and a James Blake song and sure. have it feel like you didn't go back 200 years. You right. know? I, I want to feel like I'm part of today. And I just sort of, I kind of, smugly laugh as i see the classical institutions sort of struggled like what can we do to get young people interested you know and it's like well we need new composers we need new personalities that are going to make us get fascinated and there are here and there a couple um you know cameron carpenter this crazy organist no I think you do. Do I? I, I think I, I think you, you showed a clip of him. He's like a crazy... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. he's like an amazing musical figure. 
and is not above looking ridiculous because that's what you sort of do to be a person of your time. Right. That's why I'm called Chili Gonzalez and wear a bathrobe on stage. There has to be an element of ridiculousness. Sure. Or else it doesn't, doesn't get over, you know? And uh, that's what the classical musicians and the institutions will never understand. And is part of it uh, similar to what you're doing with Pop Masterclass where you're saying, hey, here's a song that you already, that you already know and here are the things that make it. I mean, like showing the structure underneath to to try to educate through people to to educate music to that way, rather than you know like giving some kid like this classical music that you have zero connection to is, is probably as boring to you and mm-hmm. probably sounds like what your grandparents <laughs> listen to. I mean, is that is that the way in of showing people you know these are the structures of music through stuff that you already know? Yes, but I'm most interested in showing that the connections between most Western music, and I want to say Western music because I'm not an expert in anything but Western music, where classical music sort of eventually gave way to North American contributions of like jazz and pop music. And all of that shares this 12-note DNA here, you know? And what interests me in this age of sort of musical identity politics and and extreme sort of genre uh, you know, building of walls between musical countries is to sort of bring some musical humanism back into it and sort of say, let's look what's in common. Let's really look what's the same about these styles of music. And it's like, much as humans and chimpanzees, 98% is probably the same. And the differences, what we call musical styles, aren't actually musical differences. They are sort of semiotic differences and technological differences and social differences, which are huge, but shouldn't be mistaken for actual new musical, radical, game-changing sort of elements. Can you think of examples of what you're talking about? Can you play examples of what you're talking about of two different, you know, that aren't necessarily different musical styles, but just culturally influenced? Well, I... I would just say, you know, if you look at rap, you would tend to think it has to come from a certain social background. It should tend to use these kinds of instruments, samplers, drum machines. It should have a certain attitude uh, in which it sort of takes other elements of pop culture and turns them into something else. None of those are actually radical new ideas. Those were all done. There's things called theme and variations where you kind of sample, where Mozart would take a little Salieri theme and to humiliate Salieri, (laughs) he would like, look at all the variations you can do with this. Look. And I then just fart I, at the end of it. I just basically pwned your theme, you know, <laughs> Salieri. How do you feel now? I bet you want to kill yourself. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's I mean, again, it's, it sounds a bit trite. Or a bit, I'm not trying to be cute when I say sampling, the idea of taking elements and sort of turning into something else is not actually new. In that context of rap music, of course, it's brand new. Socially, it was very, very new. And sonically, it's new because there's different technology. But the same 12 notes, the proof is you walk into a studio where a rap is made and you're going to see like a MIDI keyboard with, guess what, these same 12 notes that are, that are right here. And so the, the view of looking through music, the prism of those 12 notes is there. So what interests me is to say, okay, here's a song with um, a chord progression. Let's take like this. So like Stray Cat Strut, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so you can go to like an old Chopin piece and you'll find, well, first of all, you'll find Gregorian chants where it's like, speedy to in deo, speedy to in deo. You'll definitely find that. Stray cat straw, I'm a lady's man. Yeah. 
I think there's a side project with a really good pun waiting to be made, <laughs> which I'll let my brain figure out in background processing for the next Straight five minutes. Straight chance. Oh! Hey, come on. It's done. We did it. Uh, listen, I'm surprised Brian Setzer hasn't fucking tackled Gregorian chant. He brought back that Rockabillies, then he brought back, like, Swing. So now why can't he bring Gregorian chant into pop music? I think the gauntlet's been thrown, so... <laughs> it's your move, Setzer. <laughs> there's a Chopin piece. That I think it's Fantasy in F minor. It's like... It's like hit the road jack, right? Or like Snoop Dogg. Like, how is it possible that this chord progression has like spanned centuries? Well, does it mean it has some magic property and anyone who uses it will make a hit? Definitely not, but just that that musical material, I would just argue there's something about that descending bass line. It's like very doom-laden, right? But then like Sisyphus, you're kind of back at the top. You know, there's something very poetic and, for me, tells a story. And you loop it and you can write a thousand songs on it. So this is not to diminish the fact that like, well, did Snoop Dogg know that he was using that chord progression? It doesn't matter. The knowledge, the foreknowledge doesn't matter. The fact is our ears are attracted to these things. That's what interests me is that, you know, the next person to write a song on that chord progression might think they invented it. Right. And why not? They're allowed to. But they didn't invent it, obviously. They just attracted to whatever inherent in that chord progression that made it a thing that has traversed the centuries. Well, he adds the story to it, though. In that case, Snoop adds a story to it. So he's owning that chord progression and, it's, and, and he's, he's not owned by it. He's saying, yeah, that maybe, you know, this is dangerous and I'm the one who, you know, to, to, to quote Walter White, I am the danger, basically. He's saying I am the danger with that, I think. And maybe Chopin was feeling that when he was kind of thinking of the Gregorian chants and how they would have used it as well and, and sort of had his own version of like, oh, I remember how it made me feel when I was a child listening to these Gregorian monks in my church. And so I'm inherently going to sort of let that bubble up to the surface. That's the thing. We all grow up on music when we're very young and don't even know what musical taste is. And that's our real musical DNA. Like when I'm sitting there playing and I'm like, ooh, this sounds familiar. I think I might have ripped this off, which happens like every two days. Usually it's like a TV theme. It's like, <laughs> it's like wait a sec, did I write this? I'm sure I wrote this. I, I must. This is pretty good, you know? It's good. I, just, I want to go someplace where everyone knows my name. Anyway, I don't know. Maybe it's probably not it. But I, but I was just... We, we, Rob Zombie was on a couple days ago, and we were talking about the Peanuts, and um, I mean, you know, and, and Vince Guaraldi, and just the, and how sad the Peanuts actually, like, what a sad tale the Peanuts mm-hmm. actually are, to the extent that their Christmas song is the saddest song. Christmas time in here, mm-hmm. like that is such a depressing. Not celebratory. Like, we're not happy about Christmas. We're not celebrating Christmas. And yet a major key. Now, that is something special. So everyone says, major is happy, minor is sad. And yet there's all these exceptions. And that, like, you know. That's very major, but isn't it? It's, it's childhood sad. So it's deep sad. You right. know, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, God, I hated my childhood. You know, I mean, I can, yeah, like, I, can already, I can feel it like just hearing those chords. You could just feel the, oh, I think I'm going to be really sad. But what about this? Oh, God damn it. Mm-hmm. 
God, that's just, you could just feel like you're being stabbed with a Christmas tree. I always wanted to, to learn the Peanuts theme. I think his hands were, I don't have big hands, and the original key is very stretchy. It's real pianist stuff. Yeah, it's hardcore, like, insider piano hands type stuff. My brother, who's a film composer named Christoph Beck, uh, did a bunch of stuff like Buffy the Vampire Slayer back in the day and, like, some little Frozen hangover movies, nice. Edge of Tomorrow. He's, like, a big-time yeah. dude. I was just hanging out with him. And um, he wrote the music for the new Peanuts movie that came out. Really? And at the time, they were looking for, like, sort of some sort of name pianist uh, to do the piano parts. Uh, and so my brother suggested me, and so I, I, I had one Skype meeting with them, and uh, it seemed to be going pretty well. And then somehow I said, dude, is your music, do you have any happy songs? <laughs> and I was like, hmm, the demo I sent was already focusing on like the more, like I know my stuff can be very European, very melancholy. So I'd already edited the most arguably happy things I have. <laughs> and they were like, it's so sad, you know? And I thought... But but that's, but peanuts is so sad. Yeah, and and I guess the sadness didn't probably, and maybe rightfully so, didn't make it into this latest version. And in the end, they didn't really have much piano at all. And the whole idea of a name pianist um, uh, sort of fell apart. That's kind of uh, strange. It is. It is. I mean, I guess they sort of feel like, oh, we got to make peanuts for kids today, and kids today don't understand, you know, malaise. Uh, existential it, dread, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that's but that's what that was. That's what that was all about. I mean, it, contextually, it made all the sense in the world. But uh, yeah, that. I mean, I think you can play it in C, and it's just like, you know, C D E C D. Yeah. But you want to hear sad? It's like <laughs> that's murderous. <laughs> That's basically like a, that sounds like that's that sounds like a murder quest. <laughs> there was a there's a guy I don't maybe you know him, maybe you don't know him, but it's uh I think his name is like Piano Harry or something but he's the guy that'll you know he'll play he he'll play like the Harry Potter theme and and like a million different styles and they'll go oh, uh jazz and he'll play it jazzy. All right, now play it like disco and now play it like an 80s and he'll he'll do all that. But taking a song and putting it into different contexts I feel like tells you so much about whether or not it was even a good song right. to begin with. Whether it with. can survive the translation yeah. of musical styles. Exactly. Or is it just based on the fact that it has a really cool right. coming in every four bars and you're like, that's what makes it. Um, yeah. What is it? Do you have a particular favorite piece of music that you like dragging into a bunch of different styles just to showcase it's different? Well, I, sometimes I do entire sets just of a kind of internal musical jukebox um, and, you know, Mostly based on the very sophisticated songwriting of the 80s, especially, mm-hmm. yes. where, where there was still a lot of pride in sort of traditional structure. Um, I'm kind of blanking, but just like name any song. So let's talk about, let's talk about the 80s. What type of 80s music do you like? Do you like alternative 80s? Did you like the, the, like the high end? Like the, like the, I, when I say high end, I mean like not a lot of bass, but like high end Brit rock that came over, like Duran Duran, The Cure, all that, Depeche all that. Mode, yes. Smiths, Smiths, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, yes. anything produced by Trevor Horn. Yeah. Uh, um, Madness. You Madness fan? Yeah, inching a little too close to ska for me. I know I'm in California, but... Uh, <laughs> well, not the ska part, but I think, I think Elvis Costello wrote It Must Be Love, which I think is one of my favorite, favorite songs of all time. And they, yeah, they, they de- it's funny, ska, every so often it's like, Ska's back. All right, it's gone again. More ska. All right, mm-hmm. so guys, put the trumpets away. Uh, Pet Shop Boys. Pet Shop Boys. Uh, they just played here a couple days ago. Uh, you know, there's a very good example of using real traditional uh, storytelling in like suburbia. 
then it goes to back to the verse, and it's like all of a sudden it's minor, it's mean, you know, <laughs> out in the doorway, <laughs> you know. Suddenly it's like whoa, it's kind of like almost Broadway musical level of sort of word painting between like the sort of vision of suburbia that's supposed to be like sort of, I guess, falsely cheesy, sure. you know, sort of. And then it's like, but strip back the mask, and it's actually. <laughs> the That's the real the world, yeah, exactly. And that you don't hear so much of uh, in today's pop music. Things, little, little harmonic signifiers that really sort of tell the harmonic story. And that's why, like I said, sound has become the thing that tells a story. You know, the beat drops, and then you hear some crazy siren sound, and that creates expectation that will either be satisfied or thwarted. Whereas before, it was with chord progressions that you would sort of play with people's emotions like that. Now it's become more frontal and reduced that just an individual sound tells that whole story. And sometimes it's more of a sound effect than an actual musical phrase. Let's see, what other... ABC is a band I was a big ABC, fan of. Of course. Martin yeah. Fry. Yes. Uh, F-R-Y. F-R-Y. Uh, they were great because they all had these weird characters that they would play. And, and especially at that time... Adding the component of MTV being this new thing, and now they're adding a this visual film storytelling component to the the videos. I mean, obviously, they all had those shitty videos where they're like, oh, they're just playing in a rehearsal space. But then when they would actually tell stories and you'd get a sense of who they were, I mean, that was... That was that was my childhood. That's why when I say Lionel Richie dancing on the ceiling, it really did affect me in that way. It was like, okay, I think I kind of want to live in that world that is, you know, the beginning of um, music videos. But just what you just said made me think of the um, the Maniac video. Mm-hmm. Like, just I just kind of went to my sexual awakening for a second. <laughs> and uh, there's there's this Michael Sembello, Maniac. Yes, yes. And uh, I wasn't thinking of him. No, uh, you know, uh, but. Um, the song lends itself to a kind of sort of Steve Reich sort of like minimalist interpretation mm-hmm. that I used to do quite a bit. So it'd be like. Etc. I'm just a small town girl <laughs> on a Saturday night. I think we could just like do karaoke jams in the living room. But yeah, but that song too, that had the weight because it, it was so, that song was so tied to Jennifer Beals' feet. You know, she's a welder by day, but at night, you know, she has dancing. I, I dreams. wanted to be tied to her feet. <laughs> but with the with the uh, what are those fucking aerobics like the leg warmers? The oh, leg, warmers. leg warmers. She like that movie made leg warmers a thing. You could not look after after um, that movie about after uh, what was the name of the movie Flashdance. Flashdance yeah. after Flashdance came out without seeing fucking leg warmers uh, everywhere. But that you know, do you feel like people today are not learning the basic structures of music, or does that not matter? I mean, do you think classical training is? Im- you said you didn't think it's not going to come back, but do you think understanding it is important? Every great musician I worked with or saw up close had a kind of map of music in their head to varying degrees of abstraction. The more trained musicians, they learn the version that has been passed down. And, you know, it involves this three or four hundred years of Western music theory and and the notes on the staff. But if I hang out with Peaches in the studio for a few days, she has just as valid a system. 
it's just probably a bit more abstract and she hasn't put the names and the words to it. But that, I think, is the point. A great musician doesn't need to be trained. They train themselves to see music through a prism. And uh, I think it's important to know that, like, music is not getting worse. And the fact that sound is sort of substituting for harmony is just a reflection of where society is at. And I don't try to necessarily fight it. And in fact, it has maybe helped me have a career and find a niche to be in the studio with people like Daft Punk or Drake. And when I'm in the studio with people like that, I'm not there to collaborate on a song you know, like from scratch. Let's just see what happens and jam. It's a bit like I have this musical problem. I feel like harmonically I want to have more feels here. Can you help me? And that's sort of what I do. I'm kind of a specialist in a way of old school harmony, but I've also demonstrated a real passion and love for today's pop music that I hope that they can hopefully hear in what I do. And that's when I end up in a moment where I think, oh, this is amazing. I'm a man of my time. I'm, I didn't sacrifice the tools I wanted to use, the piano and my harmonic knowledge. And yet I'm just sort of peripherally rubbing up against today's music and today's sort of great musicians that I admire. And uh, so in a way, the fact that this harmonic knowledge has sort of gone out of style has helped me greatly on a purely selfish sort of level of how to sort of promote my musical message. So I think it's probably a good thing. And I really do believe that stories are still being told in the same way. Otherwise, we wouldn't like any songs. And I like a lot of songs. I like a lot of music that comes out today. And uh, it finds some other solution. It's harmonic storytelling by other means. And so let's say I'm a pop musician. I'm a, or any kind of musician, but let's just say I'm a pop musician. And Hardwick I, with without the the with no the vowels. vowels, yeah, because yes. uh, that's how that was the domain I could get. Uh, but I bring you in and I go. So I I kind of feel like I want to do and then over here. Bah, 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 bah. How do I get from here to here? Like, are you basically just you're filling in gaps or you're collaborating and they're they're saying this is the kind of musical story I want to tell? What am I? They options? have something that's like three quarters finished usually. Got it. You know, or two thirds finished, and they sort of feel like there's an element missing. Um, there might be already piano in most cases where they kind of have just a piano that the producer might have just sort of banged out and sort of it sounds a bit more like just like maybe like and they kind of like what else can we do that and I'll be like well we can do like this or I'll just propose and then at some point you can kind of see their eyebrows just kind of raise up and you're like oh I think I got what they had in their head I'm just fishing around showing them the 50 different options I can think of. And at one point, they'll be like, yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I had in mind. I'm just reaching into their brain because most of them, they hear it. You know, a great musician hears their song finished. Imagine the frustration of not knowing how to get it out. Get it out. That's why people need collaborators in general. And um, of course, now music is often made in a way where they're reacting to things, like especially rappers and pop musicians today listen to a lot of sort of 40% finished songs that are sort of like just demos with missing vocals. And it's up to them to think, oh, I could imagine writing something on top of this. That's reactive, but it's no less sort of waiting for that moment of inspiration. They'll react in the moment and be like, oh, I can imagine on top of that, I could sing something like this. So that also, it doesn't mean they're less of a genius just because one songwriter sort of has it in their head waking up in the morning and gets it out. It's, that's not more laudable in my opinion than someone who just hears a beat and then thinks of that perfect thing to say on top of that beat again it's just reduction flattening and it's been happening since music began now i 
maybe this is an incorrect statement, but in in my simple mind, I think okay. Oh, mo- I love Simple Minds. <laughs> simple Minds. <laughs> By the way, Simple Minds, fucking one of the best bands of the '80s. And that entire, if you listen to Glittering Prize, which is their greatest hits, every fucking song. Not even, j- yeah, they have a song called "See the Lights." That's such an amazing. Uh, it, like all of, I highly recommend if you're not a simple anyone who's listening who's not listened to Simple Minds, Glittering Prize, listen to it. every song is some fucking anthematic. You feel like. You're being swept across the Scottish Highlands, you know, like it's highly recommend Simple Minds. But in my Simple Mind, I think, okay, and a more amateur person could add a bunch of notes, but it takes a real professional to know which notes to take away. That's absolutely true. That is true. Okay. Absolutely true. And that's a big part of what I do is to not have it sound too musician-y. You know, you know what musician-y sounds like when I say that, you know? So imagine that I'm sitting there with Drake trying to come up with a part for Marvin's room. And, you know, if I'm like, you know, six in the morning, losing my old phone, you know, it's, it's going to be like, that's ridiculous. It's like, a, you know, exactly. It's like a parody version. So it's just like, how can I get across that information with the least amount of notes, you know? And so the chord technically is three notes, right? To make it sound modern, you just take things out. It has to be flattened and reduced. That's what the process of pop music evolving has brought, you know, is just more and more reduction and compression and elision. So you can get it done with just these two notes. I mean, the audience kind of fills in everything else anyway, but it's more intimate. Somehow more humble. And, you know, when things are musician-y, they sound a bit macho. It sounds very male. It sounds very like spreading your musical seed. Well, because you're trying to... I think a, a tragic thing has sort of happened in in vocals, sort of the American idling of vocals. Where, right. I, in my opinion, in this, listen, everyone has a different. What's your problem with that, Chris? <laughs> well, I don't that, understand. I don't understand. It's I all that soul yodeling. Yeah, it's all that soul yodeling because I think, you know, like if you if you know if you listen to Etta James. There's so much emotion in her voice. Patsy Cline. Chet Baker. Yes. There's so much emotion in their voices that they don't have to try to smoke and mirrors you with technical proficiency and go, listen to this. You know, and you're going, wow, they must be good. He listened to all those. Sure. But to me, it that, just. That's, that's the musical like equivalent of someone saying, I'm a good person. Right. Right. You know? Right. Oh, that's <laughs> genius. That's so fucking funny. I'm a good person, person, person. You know, and then. I feel like the first person to kind of really do that in the modern pop age was Mariah Carey in the late '80s because she had such a, an insane vocal range. Range, and then, uh, and then it just kind of got more and more. And then I think some some gospel influence came in. But then when American Idol came around, you know these these people had to show the judges. I am good. Look how good I am. Look at all this crazy stuff. So they do it. The audience falls into the clap trap where they go, we should clap because that sounds impressive. And then a whole generation of young people go, that's how you sing well. And now I just feel like it's kind of... Yeah, but there's also Lana Del Rey and there's Aaliyah and there's uh, Ciara and there's Beach House and there's like a bunch of amazing singers who fly in the face of that and we should just reward them more. Nico Case is one of my favorites. Nico Case. Nico has such a soulfully amazing voice without punching you in the the head. I also just, 
my mother screamed so loud when I was a kid. It really turned me off loud singing. I don't like the sound of a lot of air being pushed out of someone's mouth. Really, I literally, it, it will, I can love everything about the music and recognize its genius, but it will just on a fundamental level turn me off. I need that whispered intimacy. I need that Frank Sinatra approach. You know, he was the first to really get that the microphone was like an instrument you could use. And stupid opera singers were like, we're going to keep singing as if microphones never existed. <laughs> that's why it sounds so out of date, you know, and, you, and, and that's what singing should be to me. It should be like someone whispering in your ear. That's just my personal taste. And I don't work with many people who sort of, you know, scream a lot. I love Busta Rhymes, but I like, Busta Rhymes. I don't like the, Buster Rhymes, you know? Right. So in all forms of music, I think there's a way to create intensity without actually trying to sort of blow people's hair off like a hairdryer that's kind of an interesting point you said your mother screamed a lot so was this so was music for you a way to and 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 a way to escape with some type of intimacy that you could control like was that Uh, a lot of that a lot of that a lot of just feeling like "Eh, things are basically easier here and then it gets reinforced by the sort of awe that you can create in people when you get good at it and finding your place in a sort of social way Girls are interested, like all the things that are sort of make you so vulnerable and insecure as a kid suddenly are fixed and you get a pass for everything, you know, you sort of get a pass like, oh, you play the piano well, well, you're basically now moved into the category of like, you know, we treat you with awe. And that's a very seductive thing and very um, – it protects you and also projects you out a little bit. Now, now I don't want to put you on the spot and say, list everyone you've worked with, but just so people get an idea because you've worked with a lot of different – types of musicians and a lot of different styles of music uh and even i know had like an alternative rock band in the 90s yes i did did, did you have a yodel you're like yeah i did not yarl i yarl. believe you did you want to say yarl yarl i think it's a yarl no i didn't really yarl i was in a band that most people uh charitably called elvis costello meets prince but imagine failing on both counts so <laughs> Um, but since then, I'm, I kind of have a pretty close, tight-knit musical family of people that I've been working with a lot. Um, even though we don't necessarily do songs together, we give each other quite a lot of advice. And uh, we're kind of on the board of directors of each other's companies in a strange sure. way. And that includes Feist, who mm-hmm. many, many people might know. I know Feist. Know, I know sure. Feist. Yeah. I, I, I first heard her with Kings of Convenience. Exactly. And then she kind of blew up after after that. That's right. But what an incredible – I mean, her voice is so – ethereal in a non I, I feel like there are some singers who crutch on the i'm singing like an old time mm-hmm. like it's just too breathy yes, and, yes. and 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 grady to me and feist just has this perfect balance of ethereal but really really beautiful and she really draws you mm-hmm. in she's an amazing musician great guitar player and songwriter and i've, I've sort of co-wrote a bunch of songs with her, co-produced a bunch of her albums, and she's just a very close friend, as well as Peaches, who you might think is, of course, in a different universe. She's more of an uh, electronic performer with a performance artist and a lot of sexual politics. Do you know Peaches? Yeah, I know who she yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so we kind of have a little group, and we sort of are quite tightly knit. And then once in a while, I sort of get a call on the bat phone from someone like Daft Punk or Drake, where I just sort of discover that uh, they're into my piano records, and then somehow they reach out, and I have the chance to sort of spend 
a few very consequent hours in the studio with them and it sort of takes on outsized proportion just because of the size of their careers and just infers a little bit of stardust on mine and gets a lot of people interested in what I do, obviously. So it's it's kind of win-win for, for everybody involved. And um, when I really admire the musicians and they, they acknowledge me by even knowing who I am, uh, it gives me a, a really a, a great deal of uh, satisfaction um, because I wasn't sure I'd be able to pull off being myself and having any sort of remote relevance. It really seemed like a long shot at the time because I was like, okay, I want to play piano, but I kind of have this big mouth and I can't seem to just be the humble piano player everybody wants me to be. <laughs> and, and, but there has to be a way. And then rap kind of golden age hit in the 90s and I'm like, there it is. There's no, that's a false choice. You don't have to decide whether you're serious or whether you're stupid because I happen to be both. And rappers are being both. And like that was the way forward for me. So rap was an influence in signifying terms before it was a musical obsession of mine, to be honest. So how do you, because you have your own, because you have your own voice and you have your own solo career and you are used to, you know, when you're performing, you're the guy, but then you go in and work with other artists. And I assume, well, that's a completely different mode. You can offer them suggestions, but how do you, you know, if, if inside you feel like, I really think they should turn left, but they want to turn right so bad. I don't know. I mean, how are you able to surrender? I assume they have tremendous respect for you or they wouldn't have you in there to begin with. But how do you sort of balance the egos with that stuff? I just want to be useful and I trust that they're way far ahead of me if they're in that position when they're like actual sort of cultural touchstones of today. So I never had any illusions. I know that I'm marginal and I know that my, my music is about music. And therefore, it has a limited, I don't know what the word is, uh, horizon, shelf life. Um, but when I can be with people who are whose music is not about music, but whose music is about life, I feel like I have something to contribute. It's just, what is that going to be? But I would never presume to know better than them, even if I actually don't like something that they've done. On the Daft Punk album, there's a lot of choices where I'm like, make me cringe a little bit, but... I'm not there to do anything but suss out what it is they want from me and not read that wrong. Because if I read that wrong, it's like kissing a girl too early. <laughs> you're done. Well, and you're also sort of like a, we need a specialist, you know, and you come in with a violin case that has the Tommy gun in it. He's going to come in and do clean. And like, you're the guy when they've hit the wall. Fuck, we don't know what else to... So I imagine... If only there was like a kind of piano player, but who understood us? And then that's sort of my name comes up, right? Right. You know? um, but I've been in the position of hiring someone who didn't read me right and wasn't able to just do the one damn thing I wanted them to do. And it's extremely, uh, you're very crestfallen at the end of that. Because sure. you're like, oh, I, this person was so talented, but they just somehow got ahead of them, their own skis on this. Right. And, uh, and even though I thought I was pretty clear, you know, um, some people aren't ready to do that. So I get enough ego gratification from Daft Punk calling me that that like then gives me the ego energy to like totally suppress it while I'm in the studio sure. with them because like the hit of ego adrenaline I got from getting the call is like a top 10 moment for me. That's enough for me to ride on that where I'll just like literally sit there and don't say anything for the first five hours and just like, what are they telegraphing to me with their body language, with, with what they're saying? What am I hearing in the music? Like, let me just listen, just like Hillary Clinton style listening to her, you know? <laughs> well, I think we're in an, it's, it's nice to see that someone who is an expert in music not be a snob about music and go, well, 
this only this type of music is acceptable and that type of music is insipid and bullshit. And it's like you seem to really appreciate all aspects and all shades of music. For yeah, but that is. kind of conformity and therefore sort of self-appointed elites in every, are in every genre. I mean, it's maybe worse in underground music. Like indie rock is way stuffier, way less tolerant of sort of coloring outside the lines than even classical music, dare I say. It's like stultified and hierarchical and uh, there's a lot of you can't do that in indie rock. There's a lot of you can't do that in electronic music. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. I honestly feel like and I'm sure I'll get... Uh, oh, this isn't recording anymore. Um, I honestly feel like some people... So just make sure that one is yeah, still. So. Okay. Uh, I honestly feel like some people don't actually care that much about music, in, especially in that scene, that underground, that indie scene. They just care about seeing, knowing stuff before other people. And once other people start knowing that, they don't like it anymore. And then I always feel like, oh, well, you don't, like mu- you don't really care about music. You just care about being ahead of a trend, which is kind of trendy to be honest that you're describing the haute couture fashion industry in a way you know? <laughs> I guess that's true and and yes it does take on a lot of those elements where the quality of the reception depends on its sort of obscure uh, elitism right you know? and um yeah but that's our old-timey phone that's an actual old-timey phone and not a cell phone with an old-timey ring respect we have old-timey phones in the fucking house uh, I watched a performance of yours where you played with a quartet. It was kind of like in a library. It was like a library, and it was you, you and the you and the quartet were just in such a great groove. It just it it had a, it had a really great motion to it. It had a really great uh, it 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 just moved. And then the you know the quartet. I mean, the cello is one of my favorite instruments because when properly used, it just like saws right through. It's actually, when I mentioned um, It Must Be Love, there's one part when they're doing the chorus like a second, you know, like later in the song, it goes, uh, as soon as I wake up every night, and then you just hear, and it's like, why did they add that there? Mm -hmm. It was not in the rest of the song. What made them decide? So I think... uh, like a cello is just like an assassin's instrument in the right position. And it you you were just so well you guys were just all so in such a wonderful groove together. Yeah, I just feel like a string quartet had this potential to sort of be as the piano is to uh sort of uh pop music in a way the string quartet kind of contains the seeds of an orchestra. Right. So when I want it to feel orchestral I can have these four guys kind of do their best and that struggle for four humans to try to sound like 50, something very poetic in there. And I sort of, I call them the most expensive sampler in the world, you know, because (laughs) I'm just sort of able to sort of get them to just like, you know, on cue, just like give a little masterclass on Eleanor Rigby, you know, and then they'll like play a few bars of Eleanor Rigby and I'll sort of point out that then that's a little bit similar to Ina Klein and Nach music from Mozart in sure. the use of the quartet as kind of a propulsive. It's a short ride to like. And on stage, I started to do this thing um, where I misidentified uh, these songs. So I would say, I would play a little example from Eleanor Rigby, and I'd say, like, of course. Who knows what was in the minds of the Rolling Stones when they wrote this piece for String Quartet? I mean, it was really radical. The Stones were really known as a rock band, so to suddenly have a single with String Quartet was really radical. Give me the Beatles. 
but I say the Rolling oh, Stones. Oh, but you say the you literally just said I, that what you were going to do. Yes, yes. You just I fell into it. my trap. I fell into the trap. And, oh, get me out. I'm stuck in the trap. There's a tiger in here. And this is playing on this whole idea of music snob and knowledge and I'm in the know or am I not in the know. <laughs> I play this character who must be an expert who says he's a musical genius and maybe we believe him, all this, right? And for me to make such a casual error in something so famous, I mean, the reactions I get from musicians, they sometimes come backstage and they just got that had ex- freshly exploded head look and they're like why do you why do you said it why, why why or i'll get facebook messages like dear maestro gonzalez it was such a wonderful concert last night you know and and like we drove home in such a good mood laughing and the, the way you play with the audience is wonderful one small just small small <laughs> note you're trolling people you know that there's i guess i guess that's what trolling i, I guess yeah. so and well, they, you're they, fucking with them you're purposely fucking with them to get a ra- to get that's them, right yeah and then they say i hate to break it to you but uh, you know here's a link to eleanor rigby <laughs> with a youtube link you know what's so funny is that you told me you were gonna do that and then you did it and i was like that's like a magician going i'm gonna fuck with you i'm gonna i'm gonna make i'm gonna put something from this hand and hide it and you go all right that's not gonna get by me well, wait, you just fucking... Yeah, I know. I just told you I was going to do that. But I didn't know I was... Cr- I, I did that to try out. Like, I A-B a lot of just, like, things to try. Sure. And sort of like, do I go too far? Is it getting, and, but that, I was I was very surprised. It got a very visceral reaction. I had really crossed the line. And I crossed quite a few lines sometimes and think, oh, I guess, you know, they've seen so much radical comedy, most people, that it's, it's kind of hard to cross a line these days, you know? That was crossing a line. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like screwing with sort of the sanctity of musical knowledge that makes you feel like you're sort of part of something. Right. Well, you know, this idea of knowledge being a currency uh, and not even even more than a currency, sort of like this prized thing. And if you don't know the right thing, fuck you. You're not in the group. You know, it's like this instant... I, I mean, I've started wildly unsubscribing to subreddits that I was a part of because, you you know, you make one mistake and people can't wait to be like, oh, are you illiterate? You know, it's like That's they just right. they they love they fucking love it. And it's like, well, you're addicted to just shitting on people because that's your power trip. And it just feels like such a waste of energy. Like, hey, you know, maybe maybe some people just made a mistake or maybe he's fucking with you or it's not, it doesn't have to be the end of the world. But I highly recommend that anyone who's never gone to see good chamber music, just go do it once. When we were in Salzburg, we went to the castle in Salzburg and saw a performance. But I feel like you can gain so much more of an understanding of music from just watching one performance and seeing – when at a time when they you know when you only had a few instruments and they had to cover all of the the strata That's of right. the musical spectrum in just a few instruments how they were able to do that and that to me gives you so much more of a lesson than sitting down and opening a book and going in the fort in the you know the 1700s mm-hmm. this was not to mention seeing an orchestra where it's very faceless. It's like watching an army. But when you watch chamber music, which is anywhere from one, two, to maybe up to six or seven performers, you know it because you've seen bands and you understand like the guitarist, the backup singer. Like you understand how in a rock band, in a way, the roles are kind of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, splayed out and stuff. But when you see chamber music, you're like watching, you hear, and you see the guy with his like weird face and his funny eyebrows. You're like, oh yeah, that fits to that guy. Or, and, and you sort of over a two hour concert, you get to know them like you're getting to know a rock band that's on stage. And that's definitely one way to sort of understand that music is to think of it as a band. And then they smash their viola at the end. Exactly. Uh, which is always a great, that'd be, I mean, that'd be fucking amazing if there was like thrash chamber music. I have, I have a routine that I did only once. It didn't work as well as I thought. <laughs> 
we exchanged the quartet's violins uh, in an encore in that two minutes before you yeah. go on for the encore. And we suddenly just had like $50 violins bought at the pawn shop. And then our drummer is a juggler, not a very good one. And so uh, <laughs> we, ha- we decided that he would like take those violins and juggle them the best he could. But at some point he would drop them and everyone would think that he dropped the quartet's instruments. And I thought it would be, an, it was really great. Like I was for the quartet, for the audience of the quartet, it was magical. Yeah. The audience didn't seem to really get it. Somehow. Well, it, it, here you're running into the problem of context. And I think just the more you do shit like that, the more your audience will come and they'll be okay with it. But their minds are you know, like, and I think it's great. You're basically, kind of Andy Kaufmaning them because they they come with one expectation or Victor Borging or Victor Borging yes it's a bit more appropriately but But yes with a with a with a lot of Kaufman elements that are positive but lightly subversive well they're not that you know to them they probably think well the worst thing that could happen is if the instruments break so to see that happen in this moment where they think, well, this is serious music, no matter how you're present, because I see, I know, yeah, like, but misidentify the Beatles as the Rolling Stones, and then so subtle, all hell breaks though, loose. That, yeah, well, exactly. But I've seen so many really hilarious musicians not get laughs when they're on stage because the audience doesn't understand the context of, oh, this is a musician who is also a funny person, yeah. and this is not a comedy right. show. Who is playing with music as a toy in yeah. front of your eyes, like Reggie Watts. Genius, exactly, exactly. The greatest living performer of all I time. I mean, Reggie's, Reggie's incredible. I mean, I, I, I remember two, I toured with Reggie in like 2005, 2004, and no one knew who any of us were, and so we were playing to like eight people in these, you know, decent-sized venues. And But Reggie's whole thing is like you can never take your eyes off him. And he, and he, he hated repeating stuff too, which was so frustrating. It's like, come on, man. Uh-huh. This is good shit. You're just throwing it away. So we finally started recording some stuff. But, you know, the audience just needs to be led a little bit so they know, okay, something weird is going to happen. But maybe you don't need to do that. I mean, to, it sounds to me amazing that you're fucking with them in that way. Yeah, and I come from, a, I bring comedic elements into a music show. I play in like usually concert halls where the symphony play. I usually play in the place that classical musicians play. Yeah. I record albums which do not contain the comedic elements except in subtler ways, right. either through my occasional rap lyrics or a little musical joke or a pun, in a, many puns in my song titles, Freudian slippers, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, and that's in the end just a comedic touch to my music and then when they see me live the comedy goes much deeper but it's never meant to be the main thing and i'll see i'll see very brilliant people like bo burnham even reggie to a certain extent and i think i couldn't live without the feeling that people have come because they've had an intimate moment with my piano album and they want me to hear me play those songs first and foremost right and the fact that i will amuse them and sort of maybe fuck with them a little bit is like a nice bonus but I don't feel confident enough in my extra musical abilities to think of myself as a, any kind of comedian uh, or to go on a tour with other comedians. I, I wouldn't do it. I would be too insecure and fundamentally feel like that's the wrong way for me. And I have this kind of wish, like, I'd love to hear just a very simple Bo Burnham song or a simple Reggie Watts song that would touch me in the way that I generally like a Beach House song or a whatever song that right. I like to listen to as a non-sort of insider uh, listener, but just right. on a real basic human level. And I don't know that those guys have songs like that and have an audience that necessarily thinks of them like that. Well, Reggie was a musician f- before he did comedy. Like, he was, uh, he was in bands. He has a musical background. I mean, Bo was a... Uh, 
a YouTube guy who made funny songs and then ended up being legitimately brilliant. I mean, he's uh, both are both clearly are, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, and if you just have a five minute conversation with either one of them, you're like, oh, you're the clearly the smartest person in this room. You know, I mean, like they're uh, such uh, brilliant guys. But I also think in your context. There's people come into these spaces and there's so much reverence where, you know, I think sometimes people might go, is that allowed? That's are you right. allowed to do that? Is that okay? Can you do that here? You know, I think people are just, they're sort of constrained by their own preconceived notions about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. But that context helps me transgress when actually I might not really be transgressing in right. a sort of real sense. But in that context, I'm certainly transgressing just by wearing slippers and a bathrobe of on, course. to the Berlin Philharmonie. And that gives you a piece of the story of like, oh, okay, so this guy, he'll break rules, so always keep an eye on. I mean, that's the first clue that people should see is, Always keep an eye on everything he does because he's already showing you you can't trust what you think you know. That's right. Uh, the misdirection. The constant misdirection. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but on the chamber music side, a, a little bit of a departure, but for a lot of the same reasons why I love bluegrass. Because it breaks music into its most basic components. And you know, like, oh, this was a good song because it totally cooked in a bluegrass version. Because it just had the, it had the right balance mm. of everything. That's right. Uh, is there a type of music that you don't do that you wish you did? Well, I think rap was sort of the third rail that I wouldn't have touched had I not moved to Europe. When I moved to Europe, rap suddenly became a style of music. You talk to Germans and they just think of, oh, well, uh, rapping is when he's talking instead of singing, you know? That's just sort of, and it's like, yeah, that's right. It's, it's not like, am I allowed to or not? It's actually somehow with the remove to be away from North American uh, view on things that you know has so much so much more than music is is wrapped up in the perception of rap, uh, and it sort of freed me up to try rapping. And I literally, because their English is so bad, and I'd be in like these jam sessions, and I would start to sort of tentatively try to rap, not saying any words, just looking for the rhythms, knowing no one's listening. So I would just be like, like almost as I learned jazz jazz, looking for patterns and looking for melodic ways of organizing the beats and things like that in your voice. And then eventually I started to, to write and then I started to do some rap songs and I realized no one really likes my rap material, but it's important for me in concerts to have that material to go to. So I've released rap music, but every time I release it, it's a softball release. I don't have any illusions. It's a specialty for some of my fans, but it, it, no, no one's clamoring for me to make the next rap album. Whereas Many people are like, we're solo piano three. Well, so you know, I have some realism about that. I know, but that's so interesting because when you this this idea of you know musical genius, you know, you you say this presentation, uh, this is who I am. I'm a musical, but then it's so opposite who I'm getting a sense of who you are, which is you seem to have a very honest um, uh, appraisal of yourself and and a very comfortable with it like oh i do this but people aren't into this they're tend to more than like you really there i think there's really something to be said for kind of having a a good sense of what you think your strengths and weaknesses are and you may not be right you might they might actually love that stuff and maybe you don't maybe maybe you're right maybe the, the numbers right. don't lie chris the numbers don't lie <laughs> but as another famous rapper once said but that is a but 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 being comfortable with that i think is a really good is a very healthy way to well i didn't know that musical genius was a fan to be honest when i started to say it i just when i said it i just liked the reaction it got and i didn't know why and then it was only later 
when I sort of had phases in my life that forced me to look, look at myself a little bit more clear-eyed, I realized, okay, I think I know what it was now. It was a insecurity that no one would say it about me. So I'm going to sort of preemptively sort of prod them to say it in some way. And some will believe it, some won't, but at least I've put it out there. Uh, and the other thing was, it's a fantasy. I wish I were a musical genius. Uh, and but what does that even mean? For me, a musical genius is not about talent. A lot of people have the talent that would get them to the first rung of the musical genius ladder. To get to the top of the ladder, you need like a social relevance. You need to really, you need to be like Bob Marley. You need to like invent something actually new. You need to like define a new musical genre yourself. So it's like, I don't know, Fela Kuti and... But you may not even know that. Sometimes people may not even know that until decades after you're dead. Or a hundred years after you're dead. So how can you even, like, it's such a strange, how do you even identify that? I guess it's, you know. Well, that's why I think I was attracted to that third rail of saying it. Because <laughs> it was just, okay, I'm getting a reaction. And a lot of people are saying, well, you can't say that about you. You have to wait for someone else to say it. And I'm like, well, who then? <laughs> <laughs> Who's that person? Can I write them a letter and if not get, me, get my who? assessment? If not now, then when? <laughs> so, yes, the digger you deep, the, the, the deep you dig, rather. The, deeper the digger you, you dig. deep needs to be the name of an album first <laughs> of all let's just let's just get that out there okay the digger you deep <laughs> is is when you realize yes it's all a construct and and you know it's uh, pull back the curtain and it's like who decides and all this and what is cultural consensus so there is something sort of third raily about about that but you know kanye said he was a musical genius uh shortly after him? i did do you believe him I don't need to believe him. When he says, I am a god, he's just like Franz Liszt saying, I'm possessed by the devil. Right. I'm, I'm in touch with his fantasy life, and he's let me into that. He would like to be a god, uh, and that touches me. Do you... Uh, that's really interesting, that it doesn't even matter like what the reality is, that you just buy into the story of it. It's just like, oh, that's what that character is, and that's what I, that's what I enjoy being a part of. But I think it's so refreshing... Because it's so common, the older you get, to be like, ah, music today is shit. Yeah, the get off my lawn. The get off my lawn. And, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I think people misconstrue being surprised with the quality of something. So when you're young, you hear new things, you have that moment of surprise. Oh, my God. Wow, the Smiths. I've never heard anything like this before. Well, this this has widened my horizons. But the older you get, your horizons don't widen as much. So then I think people just go, oh, well, this isn't good because I don't feel that thing I felt before. I was like, well, you it can't because before you didn't know what other music was. So, you you know, how do you how do you look at something with a healthy and fair lens for like what's good and how do you get into stuff now when your brain really the older you get? It just doesn't want new experiences anymore because those take work. That's right. I think hanging out with the musicians who make it is great. That but helps of course, if you can do that. If you can do that. It keeps you young in a certain sense. But without that opportunity and great effort, I think no one's musical taste can survive one conscious level of sort of identifying with the reduction of music as it as it happens generationally. Meaning you have the music you hear when you're a kid that you don't really remember pre-taste, let's say. Then you get one chance. And it's basically from like age, I guess, 13 until maybe 25 or 30, whatever that time period is, where you get to sort of identify. You know, that's why so many people of my age, rap-wise, are stuck with Tribe Called Quest, Wu-Tang Clan. They're like, rap lost me after that golden age. Right. You know? Jurassic and- 5, you like Jurassic 5? 
Okay. Not really. Okay. <laughs> I like just like super successful rappers. Gotcha, you know? gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. To me, rap is is about being on top. Like if you're not on top, you're not really, you, you lost at the rap game in a gotcha, way. Gotcha, gotcha. But it's, it's somehow a meritocracy that almost works. Like there's very few rappers who got to the top who really sort of the consensus is they didn't deserve it. Like maybe after Vanilla Ice, like maybe he's the last one where he's clearly a joke, but... More or less, any famous rapper is like amazing. Is like an amazingly talented person. Yeah. For anyone who is interested, for anyone, let's say like me or anyone who's interested in exploring more music or even learning piano, um, what's a good way in? Like, what are some good fundamentals, some good places to start? You know, because piano is certainly one of those things where they go. Yeah, I'll get to it or, oh, it's, ah, I'm going to have to practice 10 hours a day and I'm not going to, you know. So what, what's, a, what's, a, what's a better philosophical shift for how to approach it or how to think about it or how to, how to, how to slide in? Well, there's thinking about it and then there's, of course, I just sound so Canadian, thinking about it. Thinking about it. It really is. But I only notice it when I'm in foreign countries. It's so strange. I don't notice it when I'm in Canada because I guess everyone says it. I would say... To participate in music is it's quite it's it's quite difficult as an adult. If you had a couple of years of piano training, uh, then you just have to seek out some music. I I did a book specifically for the people who had one or two years uh, of piano training, where they just you know if you can pick out an F, G, and a D on the staff, then the book I did will sort of hopefully bring you to uh, a place where you can enjoy playing something that has sort of a more modern feel and little addictive pop melodies. And uh, full disclosure, I gifted one of these books to Chris. Got it. I got it right before here. Before the podcast. It's I got called it right over there. Reintroduction Etudes. But beyond my plug for my own book, I think you just need to have the attitude of a student. You know, they talk in Zen about beginner's mind. That's kind of where you got to get back to. And don't be afraid to... Some people think they're going to lose the mystery. They're going to lose the romance with music if they know too much about it. And some musicians think... I don't want to be trained because it's, they're going to train the originality out of me. And that's also somewhat valid. You know, you have to be pretty strong to survive a musical education and pick and choose the good bits. And I'm very trained. I studied like classical theory and jazz piano performance. And there was a lot of courses where I just did very badly. I wasn't interested and I wasn't going to waste my time. When I was interested, I was a model student. And I think you need to have that. It's It's so much about knowing what you don't like. And it's having the sort of the balls to sort of say there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure what i like is what i like what i don't like is what i don't like i don't like radiohead i don't like d'angelo i don't like kendrick lamar it's all overrated if that's what you think you got to really you got to own it and then decide what you like i love tv themes i love billy joel <laughs> i love the bgs that's who i am but everyone's got to sort of define themselves not only by sort of like everyone tells me this is good there must be something good you know just Trust your taste, and your, your taste is your body telling you whether you like something. Goosebumps, the hairs on the back of your neck standing up, wanting to dance, wanting to laugh. There are no guilty pleasures. There's just what your body appreciates. Boy, the Bee Gees could write the fuck out of a song. And it's like people like, you know, the Bee Gees and Prince, you know they're amazing because their songs sound amazing when other people like... <laughs> Go <laughs> so on. Good. <laughs> <They're fu> <laughs> Al Green singing How Can You Mend a Broken Heart is fucking incredible 
Check this out. <gasps> okay, but if I do it a few more times, <laughs> just like a few more times, and your body and your, your ear will start to get used to it. What's your favorite BG song? Is that it? How deep is your love? No, my favorite song is uh, from Spirits Having Flown, and uh, it's this song called "Stop." It's like a gospel six-eight kind of ballad. You better stop. <laughs> There's a bluegrass album called uh, Saturday Night Hay Fever, and it's basically just bluegrass <laughs> versions of disco songs. And night- someone thought of that title and then was like, okay, now we have How to do make, we make the this? album. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. A bit like uh, a stra- st- st- Stray Cat. Oh, Chance. Stray Chance. Stray Chance. Stray Chance Strut. Stray Chance. Uh, but uh, um, what was I saying? Oh, the uh, Bluegrass album of uh, Night Fever is such a great song, Bluegrass. I'll send you the file because it is so... That's where you really see the genius. It's like, oh, they really knew how to build a song. They That's really right. knew how to construct a song. So just quickly, a lot of these songs that you were talking about, like a lot of pop music now, do they hold up in other if you're if you're translating other genres, or do you feel like when sound is the main element or when that's one of the main elements now, this you know, this fourth dimension uh, does that make them not translate as well to other things? Because when you take that sound away, then the song kind of loses the main thing that made it, right? Exactly. And so when the sound is the sort of determinate factor in sort of making that song stand out, it may be very far from a piano song, and so a piano will have difficulty. But usually if you squint, there's a way to pull it off. Rap songs are difficult because when... As the Germans pointed out, uh, rap is just talking instead of singing. Because so it, it is very difficult to sort of get that across in, in you know, if I'm trying to, sort of, you know, I'm trying to like right. follow a rapper. I, there's no way to sort of find the recognizable melody in a lot of rap songs. That's changing now because rap songs have become more sung. And there's all these new singing rappers like Lil Yachty and Future. And those guys, you can kind of play their melodies. But those melodies are, tend to be very repetitive and nursery rhyme-ish. Mm-hmm. So nursery rhyme writing is sort of on the ascendant, you know? Like, I'm so fancy, you already know. Like this? That's literally, yeah, 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 yeah. It's right. literally saying like, I'm jet set and going to Tokyo and I'm like rubbing it in your face. It's literally schoolyard taunt. Right. You know, and you get that a lot with the Taylor Swift song with the shake it off, you know, you're the, the thing you, the, the shake it off that you play at the end of pop masterclass for that song is so beautiful. 
I want it. I want that. I want that to be the entire song. But it's 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 such a beautiful. Can you play a few, like a few seconds yeah, of sure. that that version of it? that what's that last note you just got it what is that last note that's like the tear the, the extra tear, tear falling uh, you know that, <laughs> the that, last... that's like when a gang member tattoos a, a tear on their cheek <laughs> that's, you know, what that that's what that is musically speaking it's a gangsta tear is there a, is there one song as we're sort of wrapping this out and i can't thank you enough for coming and and playing and making my piano like you've already justified the expense of the piano by coming and playing on yeah, it. Yeah, but when I told you that I get like a little sort of like ego boner when I get like a little Daft Punk uh, direct message on Twitter or something, like when I realized I had the chance to come here and meet you and be part of this, it was like a very exciting moment for my uh, sort of I'm e- so ego glad. adrenaline. Oh, I'm so honored because you know I've just immediately became a fan of your of your work and and also and the tone i mean i i completely the first video that i saw of it I was like oh yeah i would hang out with that i know that i know who that guy is i would totally hang out with that guy uh i just i wish we could i wish we could do dueling pianos together maybe someday in 40 years uh after well the reason i found out that i had a chance to even come and do this was because you had ben folds on the podcast yes and we we've, we've sort of been talking about how we can get together and do things because we we have quite a mutual appreciation society going on and uh dueling pianos with ben folds i think would be oh, man you know he is such... i would kind of be shitting my pants but i sort of think i could nail him so. i <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like you have the training. Like there is a, you know, there's empty bragging. There's like, no, that guy actually has the, he's got the goods. But Ben, Ben was the first podcast that I ever did like way back in 2011 where I said, oh, I wonder if I could convince someone to come into a recording studio and kind of do what you're doing now. And so Ben agreed to do it. And I was terrified that he was going to turn around halfway through and realize that I just tricked him into giving me a private concert because he plays the fuck out of the piano, like to the extent that, you know, like his fingers get beaten up really. He slams. I saw a concert of his and it literally made it possible to dream of, okay, he's a man of his time and he's a pianist. I'm going to find my own way. But it was like a real beacon for me that he even existed. Yeah. I mean, he like kicks the stool back and like leans. He just, he's all, he's just, there's so much, it's so... He's almost playing it as a percussion instrument at the same time. That's right. Uh, but Ben, yeah, I think you guys, I think you and Ben would be amazing together. But I, uh, I would love if we sort of close this out. Is there a song that you were surprised you could make sound good on the piano, or is there a particular favorite that you have that you want to sort of take take us out with at the end? Actually, what I'd love to do is to mark this moment. I would just improvise and try to maybe show you the sort of range of this beautiful piano that you've allowed me to play here. Please. That's that's a new arrival in the home because, of course, there's a lot of great songs, but to improvise is always a very special moment. It takes people out of all the reference points and they're dealing with music on a very um, sort of spontaneous, intimate level. So I'm just going to improvise and I'm not going to like freestyle like some rappers freestyle pulling out their Blackberry and having a quick little cram session before doing their freestyle. I'm actually going to try to 
improvise and capture something about this moment. And people should follow you online. Chili Gonzalez uh, is your stage name. That's, that's right. That's how people uh, you know you. Get me on all the social medias and check me out on YouTube, I think is probably the easiest way to check out what I do. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. Film before one nerdist producer. <laughs> More! Chili! Thank you so much. Really my pleasure. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Damn it, I'm so jealous that this, this piano is now going to be super bummed that these sounds are not going to be produced. Now leaving nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Hollywood and Crime, a new podcast that follows the Black Dahlia case and seven other murders that happened in Los Angeles around the same time. And the unique thing about this podcast, uh, they add Hollywood-style dramatization to help you get immersed in the time period. So take crime at Hollywood. Subscribe today at Hollywood and Crime, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front-row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new. Stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart. Or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, 
take risks and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.